Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's interview is with David Brickman, who was named CEO of Freddie Mac last July. David has spent over two decades at Freddie Mac and was for many years the head of Freddie Mac's multifamily division. I've long wanted to interview the CEO of one of the GSEs, and having known David casually for a long while, I'm thrilled to have him on the show. We got right into it in the conversation, which I warn you was a pretty dense discussion about the GSEs, both Fannie and Freddie, and of course about Freddie in particular, and a lot about his work leading and innovated on the multifamily side. A few things jumped out for me in the conversation. The headline, as most of you know, is that there finally looks to be some real momentum in getting Fannie and Freddie out of conservatorship. That will be the top priority for David's first years as CEO of Freddie Mac, of course. The second priority, which I wish we'd had more time to get into, was having Freddie make a contribution to solutions around the housing affordability crisis, which you all know is one of my passion areas. David and I were only able to briefly touch on that subject in this conversation. What I found fascinating and different from each of the other Leading Voices interviews is that David is actually the eighth CEO of Freddie Mac. So the conversation was not about founding a business, but about innovating within the company. What we wound up talking about, and should be interesting to our listeners, were the skills and behaviors about navigating one's career and ascending to leadership in a huge organization, rather than starting up something new in a more entrepreneurial environment. What was interesting, though, was it appears that David's pathway was less about management and moving up in a bureaucracy, but it was actually about, and no surprise on leading voices, finding holes in the business model that demanded innovation and being the leader to make that happen. And to our listeners, that might be more applicable wisdom than hearing the stories of some of these great visionaries who started great companies from scratch. Innovation nonetheless. Finally, as with many of our conversations, one's early background is very relevant to the leadership that they come to. David grew up in Lower Manhattan in a small apartment and watched the challenges and opportunities of the city through his growing up, and they got into community development right away in his career due to his love of cities and wanting to help with the issues of the urban environment. I hope that you'll enjoy the conversation with David. Hugh Freider, the CEO of Fannie Mae and I, are actually old friends. Right. And I think for where we are right now and for the two institutions having more in common and more of our future. We're joined at the hip at this point in terms of what's going to be a good outcome for us. Right. The place to start is you've been the CEO of Freddie Mac for how long? Four months now. Four months. Four months new. Four long months. Okay. I always start the podcast because we're going to dive into all kinds of details, but maybe, and you're like the 10th CEO of Freddie Mac, no, I it's, believe? No, it's funny. We don't have the official records anywhere. I was actually... Really? I'm sure we do. I just didn't really work that hard to find it. But I asked Ella Lee, my assistant, who has been the assistant to virtually every CEO, who is the most authoritative source right. for such things. And she says I'm the eighth CEO. So We'll take that. Uh, yes. My informal count suggested that's probably about right. There might have been some earlier since we have existed since uh, 1970. Yeah. And no one around here can seem to recall really any CEOs before the eight. So before the eight. let's take it as eight. And you're four months in the average life cycle of a CEO, right? And this is different in our podcast because I've talked to founder CEOs almost exclusively. So here I'm thinking you're one in a chain yes. and you're going to do this for five, 10, 15 years, whatever it is. 
And so if you look back, if you're now looking forward after four months, you say, hey, what do you want to accomplish? Any thoughts just to kind of set the stage for the conversation about what your reign may be and what may bring to this organization? Sure, I know a lot of things. And first and foremost is to enable us to exit conservatorship, that we've been in conservatorship. We have been effectively owned by the U.S. government for 11 years, and it seems it's time to go back to being fully in the private market. And Mm -hmm. I think that would be a very significant accomplishment and, again, is first on that list. I think that actually enables some of the other things that are also on the list. It's not just exiting conservatorship, but I'd like to see us also really be the leader in housing, to be the driver of innovation, of new solutions in terms of affordable housing, of figuring out how we can drive increased efficiency, lower cost in the mortgage process, in housing overall, and really uh, being the thought leader and pointing in new directions for how we can address some of the rising housing challenges which is really, I started that statement by saying, be the leader. I think that's a leader in terms of innovation, also in terms of our mission. I mean, we are unique in terms of institutions and having a mission. Uh And I really pride myself in terms of how I see that as core to who we are. I think most Freddie Mac employees see it that way. And that wearing that on our sleeves proudly is part of what Uh I'd like to not just accomplish, but be part of the legacy and that we're known both for being a great company, being a great innovator, but really being a, a great contributor to some, of, uh, some uh-huh. of the housing challenges we face. And when you say that you would be a leader in housing, it's interesting you didn't say the next word that I thought you might say, which is the leader in housing finance. Say why you didn't say that word and what well, that good, means. Good, good anticipation, actually. When I've offered that before, I usually point that out, that that uh-huh. is quite intentional. Nobody cares about housing finance other than it enables you to buy a house and or for the tenant renting an apartment. And so it's got to be about housing at the end of the day. It's got to be how that finance affects housing, Mm -hmm. whether owned or rented. And so more than just as a semantic change, I am trying to convey we've got to always think through how are we ultimately affecting the housing market, affecting how the housing market functions its health, its affordability, its accessibility, and pushing just a little bit further out in terms of ways we can influence it for the better. And to be very specific, if we're providing as much capital as we are, $2 trillion, we ought to try to have a positive influence, not just on how that financing works, but even on on things such as the physical structures that we're financing and how they're built, and at some extreme, perhaps, where they're built and how much they cost and how energy efficient they are and how they fit in broadly into the overall landscape. And so not to do anything, not for us to be heavy handed, but I think for us to be a force for continued evolution in the housing market through our contribution on the finance side. Mm -hmm. And your ability as the giant company in the finance side to then influence, let's say, how weatherproof a house might be just to drill down on one specific thing, or measures of affordability or sustainability, then you're taking a risk on those properties too. So you have a right to have a position on that. Agreed. You have a right to have a position on anything. You're the gorilla here. So. I mean, just as anybody who ever buys a house uh, observes, well, I don't really own it. The bank owns it, right, is a, a familiar yeah, yeah. refrain. Well, that I'm not going to suggest we own 
all the houses we finance, so much as we are investing a significant amount of capital in mm -hmm. every property that we finance. We have a strong vested financial interest in them. And we also have the ability to drive positive change. And so again, you mentioned energy efficiency, you mentioned sustainability, affordability. These are all things that we think we can help contribute to developing standards, developing guidelines, doing research to help point to effective solutions, whether they are for energy efficiency or for lower cost building methods or better approaches to more in our core business, just how to get the mortgage manufacturing process complete. And you also said, though, that you want to be the leader in housing and you said things other than affordability. So that wasn't the whole mission part of it. And also, I have this just man in the street gut sense, which is when the average working class person can't afford to either buy a house or rent in a market, that the system is broke. And as a leader in the system, you actually have a self-interest that the system no longer be broke somehow. Absolutely. So therefore, you have to innovate as against the fat part of the market, not just the affordable of the capital A, which means subsidized, that you're going to take a tax on, or the high end. It's somehow in that middle market. That's what you're here to serve, and it's not working all the time. No, that's a great point, Matt. And only to just affirm yeah. that. So I don't always say it's fully broken, but it's certainly going in the wrong direction. We're not producing enough housing. Affordability is becoming more challenging for the average family. A higher percentage of household budgets is going towards housing, squeezing out other essential expenditures. If this is our market, we want it to be healthier. We want it to be stable. And it's always going to be a significant amount of any household's budget, not trying to necessarily kind of continue to drive costs down, but we want it to be stable, right? The three words in our charter we t repeat all the time, liquidity, stability, and affordability. So to go even to that just stability plank, we just want to make sure the market is stable, it's healthy, it's functioning. There will always be people moving up, moving down, moving from rental into owned housing, moving from owned housing into rental housing, a market that is dynamic and that allows some degree of fluidity, but is generally stable and healthy and does allow the average household to afford safe, decent housing that meets their needs. And right now, again, that's getting more and more challenging. Yeah. And in good times and bad, because when the economy goes down and banks may say, hey, I don't want to pull in my horns on lending, you're able to keep the markets going. That stability matters there for the average American Yeah, household. stability through all economic cycles is critical. And I think yeah. we certainly proved that through the last cycle, enabling to keep capital flowing. But how much different might it have been had we not been there? Yeah. That's something uh, we sometimes try to point to that we think things could have been that much worse. Uh -huh. Certainly in my former business, in the multifamily business, we point to that, that uh, while multifamily went down significantly during that period of time, it still outperformed significantly the other real estate types. And we think that was primarily due to the GSEs mm -hmm. and our, uh, our ability to support the market. And one more question before we kind of talk about you is – Talk about them and us. So we'll just talk a little bit because I think of the GSEs. I think of Fannie and Freddie. Your name sounds similar yep. to people in the marketplace. You were the smaller brother for years. Maybe you still are. I don't know about that. But just talk about how you hold both being competitors and GSEs together in the same boat and what that means and how that's evolved over time. And Sure. It's like a sibling rivalry. And they are in aggregate still the larger of the two. Mm -hmm. Pre-crisis, that played itself out. But I think over time, we've come closer together. Uh -huh. There was also probably more differences in the two institutions 
once upon a time in the single family business, we've become increasingly more alike. And that's both, I think, a market dynamic, almost an irony. In such a huge market, there are such advantages to operating in similar ways, most notably in terms of the way our securities trade. Right. And the big evolution there was the creation of the common securitization platform and the creation of the uniform mortgage-backed security this past year, which was a big step forward, but one that did push us further into alignment on the single-family business. Uh By contrast, the multifamily businesses have always been notably different and have actually, probably for some period of time, actually went in, in different directions. Quite. And I have a little something to do with that, in fact, because... Fannie Mae probably changed little over the last 30 years in terms of their model. Freddie Mac had the more significant departure on its multifamily business in terms of adopting a unique securitization program. And so mm-hmm. we, we've we grown significantly different over the years in terms of our business models. I think there may be some evidence we're actually starting to, to start move a little closer together as well. Having been in conservatorship as long as we are and with the prospect of exiting There's now a slightly different tone at the top as far as I think we have a very shared interest in the future and both exiting conservatorship. And you're dealing with the same customers and your customers are mortgage bankers. They're lenders, not people on the street. And so to those customers, you're both selling on the multifamily side to mostly the same companies. They have a choice of an execution in your shop or their shop over there. I don't know how it works in single family, but it's, I think about the same thing. So you're selling to those same customers. They have two choices, then that is competitive just by its nature. I mean, it's always kind of a funny thing. We're selling the same, money's the same, however it shows up. I mean, how different can it be? But the executions really are very different. Here too, in terms of the broad strokes on multifamily, I mentioned that we have a different securitization model. That in turn is also kind of mirrored in how we make our loans. We characterize ourselves as having a prior approval model. All underwriting, pricing, economic decisions are made by Freddie Mac, by Freddie Mac personnel. Fannie Mae has a delegated model. Those are made by the mortgage bankers pursuant to oversight and guidance from Fannie Mae. That, I think, gives people a different feel, a further kind of broad characterization of that. We would have said, okay, on the Freddie Mac side, that tends to give us an advantage in larger, more complex deals that are going to involve some greater degree of customization, a fairly common Uh phenomena in the multifamily space. More standardized deals will sort of work better for Fannie Mae. Right. We will tend to gravitate to probably kind of the larger players, and they would gravitate to the smaller players, although we introduced a small balance loan program a few years ago. I think that changed that up. Right. But so you do end up getting some differences in how people experience We see it all the time in our surveys that they say they experience us very differently. I spoke to one of your leading lenders yesterday, name unsaid on the podcast, but he said like it's over the past 10 years and really under your leadership in the multifamily group that it became very, very high customer service and that you surpassed Fannie Mae for the first time three years ago. And maybe the surpassing numbers aren't that big or whatever, like because they're all big numbers, but that's a really meaningful thing. It is. And since you mentioned it, I'll add a little more. It's actually four years ago, but okay. I'm not counting. <laughs> <I've> been... <laughs> um, no victory laps here. We were historically 40-60. We were 50% smaller than they were, much as it is actually on the single family business. And we were also a buy and hold shop. And part of it, even rewind a little bit further, the business was really built on an old life company model. Mm -hmm. Not accidentally, because what happened in the late 80s, early 90s, is that the business was built 
without a lot of real estate expertise, without a lot of multifamily expertise, primarily folks, as I understand it, there's virtually nobody around from those days, from the single family business brought over, and we lost a lot of money. I mean, it's, in it's, the SNL crisis, yes. Uh, in the SNL crisis. It's almost quaint to talk about these days, given a little more money was lost in the great financial crisis. But back then, it was a big deal. And the entire uh, business was shut down. And we brought in new leadership, very much focused on establishing strong credit culture, strong risk principles. And we did that. And we really kind of adopted a life company model. And that worked right. well for us for a while. But it did mean we really evolved. And it felt more like a balance sheet model, as you said it a was. few minutes we were, ago. We were a portfolio lender. We bought, we held, we hoped for the best. And it worked out very well because I think we really did have great credit culture. That's been a constant since that period of time. What did change with first my influence and then under my leadership was we realized we need to find a different way to manage our portfolio, to raise capital, to manage and distribute our risk. And having run the capital markets area prior to running the whole business, I had the ability to see the CMBS market up close. We were the largest buyer of CMBS for many years. Could see what worked well in that business and also what didn't work well. Because people frequently get a little bit, they oversimplify some of the history there when they look at what happened in CMBS. The credit quality deteriorated significantly. They were bad assets. But the actual structure, the technology, the financial engineering technology was very effective. Uh-huh. It worked well. There are still relatively few true AAA CMBS bonds that ever experienced any loss. I didn't pull the statistics, but a very, very small percentage. And that's because the technology worked. And what I had the opportunity to see is, all right, let's see that technology we're, we're enabling it through our purchases. Maybe we can try it a little bit differently. And instead of just enabling what were the bad credit habits, why don't we bring our great credit culture together with this mortgage technology and try to build a new approach to securitization, which we started doing actually for the first time pre-crisis, but then really got started after the, after the crisis. We're going to come back to that subject. So okay. We're going to come back to pre-GFC in a got it. little bit. Post-crisis, though, I think we really did have this opportunity. The securitization markets had shut down. Nothing was getting done. We had the opportunity, I mean, almost sort of a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to kind of build something that we thought really was the right structure and the right way to approach securitization. And so Mm -hmm. we maintained very high credit standards. We committed to only ever securitizing loans. We would be perfectly happy to hold ourselves We pursued a different investor base for our subordinate bonds, the bonds that are very risky. We looked for equity investors, our very same people we lent money to. We approached them to see if they were interested in being investors and help ultimately build an investor community that was not the conventional debt investors. And it's an aligned B-piece buyer, I think. uh, Aligned B-piece buyers. Yeah. Real estate experts. Not that the debt folks aren't real estate experts, but folks who were in a position to own and manage the real estate, in fact, if they had issues. As well as just approaching every piece of it, the disclosure, the consistency, the transparency that we thought was what we would have liked to have seen having had our experience Mm -hmm. as an investor. And as a result, to your point, I do believe one of the questions to this day that many investors will ask if they see CMBS deals come along and they see a high concentration of multifamily, they'll ask why the agencies pass on it as there is a continue to be a sorting process in terms of the loans that we win and the loans they win. Uh And one other question before we talk about you, because I want to change the subject, but 
for listeners who aren't familiar, the headline from the global financial crisis was the agencies had something to do with this. And I think pretty clearly that the agencies didn't have anything to do with it in the multifamily business. And just talk about that for a moment in terms of when the global financial crisis happened, the agencies were in trouble. Was multifamily in trouble or not? How did that get distinguished within the company? Well, you're asking two questions. I'll take them one at a time. I think one is ultimately an economic question about just the multifamily market and as an asset class, how it performed. The second is how as a business did we do and how did we contribute? I'll take that latter one first and just highlight through the crisis, Freddie Mac multifamily never had a quarter where we had an operating loss. So we never had a cash flow loss. We were profitable the whole time. We had delinquency rates that went up, but which at their peak were still lower than many institutions run in good years. (laughs) So we did not experience significant credit losses through the crisis. Both GSEs did remarkably well through the crisis and the multifamily businesses. Both stayed open through the crisis, as we talked about a moment ago, and I think helped stabilize that market as we were supposed to. And indeed, I think helped avoid sort of liquidity problems that were arising elsewhere in the market. I think that did in turn have an economic consequence. The rate financial crisis was a huge liquidity event. Mm -hmm. And the issue with liquidity events is there are significant contagion effects. So regardless of the fact as to whether multifamily itself was healthy or not, if all money is leaving the system, that has an effect on values. And indeed, if that in turn triggers a recession and there's increased unemployment and decreased incomes, that will have an economic effect as well. But I'd say multifamilies, that effect on multifamily was, if anything, even a little muted in the grand scheme of things, in part because of the stability that was there, Right. that we didn't have excessive The effect on multifamily values of properties out in the world, not the effect on you, because Correct. you were there, so it was muted by that, how that stability was there right. for the whole multifamily quickly. business. So again, not, right. to, not to trivialize anyone who had the terrible misfortune of having to sell a property in 2008 or nine would have felt it, but the market came back quickly, came back more quickly than other asset classes. The fundamentals performed well. And again, I even want to go kind of leading up to the crisis and after the crisis, the fundamentals stayed healthy, I think, in part because we were there and our ability to continue to watch supply and demand and rents and vacancies and provide a little bit of a governor on the overall market through our own stance in terms right. of how we were extending credit and that we were watching such things. And even during periods since the crisis where uh, people have talked about overbuilding, and it's now been several times now when I've heard the somewhat chicken little-ish, I believe, refrain, there's too much overbuilding going on, we've been able to look at it. We assess it very objectively and generally concerned, you know, this is very much a localized effect. Right. This is not a macro effect. This is something that you address through underwriting and market-specific reactions. It's not... We're underbuilt. Yes. (laughs) Globally, we're underbuilt in our country. And I think people knowing, again, we were doing that. Right. And that if we did have a concern that we were being overbuilt, we would react accordingly, mm-hmm. as we have on occasion, and, and again, in specific markets where we see that occurring. I feel like the first comment that you made in the conversation, because if you are the leader in housing or the leader in housing finance and the health of the industry, so you're describing the health of the multifamily industry the way you describe the health of the housing or the home building industry even, because your influence on that business is so deep 
throughout the industry and that you were there during the crisis actually really did enable multifamily to come out quicker. Maybe it's part of the asset class as well and part of the need out in the marketplace, but all true. So let's totally change the subject. Sure. So we are here in the executive offices of Freddie Mac. So it's like the biggest job in the world. So I want to know how you got here, right? So I want to think about that. And so where did you grow up? Kind of talk about early days. I know you're incredibly well-educated. So just talk about that. Sure. I uh, grew up in New York City in lower Manhattan. Mm-hmm. Lived my childhood there. Went to high school in the Bronx. Proud graduate of the Bronx High School of Science. Okay. Um, it's one of the, like, there's three great schools you have to go to in New York or two. We only care about one for the purpose of this conversation. <laughs> Wait a no, the other one. Uh, I think Stuyvesant may uh, fight with you. But. Oh, you had to say it. Um, Sorry. And I actually mentioned that a little bit. I'll digress for a moment. I think maybe just only noteworthy in that both where I was growing up and part kind of going to school in the Bronx. I think part of my interest in urban areas and real estate and uh, in the built environment uh, stems from watching New York City in the 70s, uh, you know, late 70s, early 80s when I, you know, teenager. Those were the challenging times of New York. They were challenging. I mean, sort of last one out, turn off the lights. Yeah. I mean, there are rubble-strewn lots near where I grew up. It's now billion-dollar real estate. Mm -hmm. And watching it change in front of me. And in fact, uh, we lived in rental housing and uh, occasionally uh, I helped uh, manage money. I grew up with my mother and uh, uh, managed money in our family and uh, occasionally thought, oh, can we find an apartment at a little lower cost and saw rents going through the roof around us in, in lower Manhattan. And again, having started from, again, things were pretty run down. Uh, right. Again, not an exaggeration, rebel strewn lots right around the corner. And then I also contrast that with what to this day is sort of just a hard thing to fathom, which is going to school in the Bronx and taking the subway through the South Bronx every day. And more rubble. If you ever saw the South Bronx in the, again, early 80s, I mean, there's no describing it and what was occurring in that neighborhood and the complete decimation of really mm-hmm. an entire urban area. And that, that had a powerful impact on me. And, uh, I bet. You know, I add on top of that, having grown up with a lot of my friends, uh, kind of almost made it a hobby, just explore the city. It was, mm-hmm. it was fun. It was our playground. And uh, so just took to real estate, took to going around urban areas. Went to college in Philadelphia at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh-huh. Um, loved my time in Philadelphia. Moved back. Good town. That's uh, where I explored the city during my high school years. I did an interdisciplinary. Someone came. I went to an alternative high school. And the first day of school, they said, okay, what are we going to do this year? It's like, you don't tell kids that, right? But they said, what are we going to do this year? And someone, some teacher said, there's a word called interdisciplinary. And one guy was going to teach the oceans. And he got 15 people to volunteer to go learn about the oceans for the semester. And then the other guy did urban studies. So I signed up for that. And we basically got in a van and drove around Philadelphia every day oh, and great. did weird stuff. And I fell in love with what an urban environment was. Yeah, Never so had an exposure. Yeah. We, uh, none of us could drive, so we did it all on uh, right. a subway. But yeah, we just hop on trains and go places and check So out then the Penn, but I think you also have a master in public policy from Harvard, so so, yeah, MIT. So, uh, so talk about that and sure. then what that direction was, what you're trying to accomplish. I'll start off by disclosing, if you thought there was some grand governing principle, I'm going to not, <laughs> I'm going to disappoint you. I would describe my life, my career as sort of variations on a theme as opposed to any kind of linear progression. But left Penn, moved back to New York City and had an interest in urban development. Worked very briefly for a think tank and then for the city of New York 
and then at the all too young age of 22, found myself running a not-for-profit community development corporation. Those uh, on the podcast won't be able to see it, so they can go look at my picture. It is the benefits of going prematurely bald. <laughs> People just thought I was older than I was, and so had no reason to be running this organization at that age, but grew up a lot during that period of time. Right. Interesting challenges, but I mean, we did some great work, achieved some important things, helped redevelop that whole area if you're there too. But realized after a few years of that that was looking to have a broader influence that I loved being able to affect some change in the neighborhood, but would like to uh, think more about policy, think more in terms of national policy, think a little more in terms of economics. I had been interested in economics. I didn't pursue it as much as I wanted as an undergrad because I came to it a little bit late. So went to uh, the Kennedy School at Harvard to get a degree in public policy. And that too, I found eye-opening, met some great people, had a great experience, a fabulous school, had a wonderful experience there and moved a little bit further in terms of economics. And it was a public policy program, but really sort of focused on more sort of applied economics, in particular looking at where business and government uh-huh. meet and regulated industries and how finance and real estate kind of intersect in that way. I left the Kennedy School and moved down to Washington, where my wife and I moved. She was working on her law degree up in Boston at the same time. She was my fiance at the time. And so we thought we'd move down to Washington for a year or two before we were certain we'd be moving back to New York. Here now, 26 years later, we're still in Washington, but took a job at the consulting firm of Pricewaterhouse, uh, and it was Pricewaterhouse then. It then became PricewaterhouseCoopers. I realized while there, started doing economic modeling, economic analysis, uh, realized I had an interest in getting a little further Uh overeducated and managed to talk Pricewaterhouse into sponsoring me to go get my doctorate in economics. Uh And which they agreed to do in return for sort of part-time consulting commitment and went to MIT to do a doctoral program they've got that's a joint program between the economics uh, department and the real estate center. And so Uh did that program for a few years. I regret to mention that I did all the coursework. I passed my general exams. I got the approval for my dissertation proposal, and I never actually finished the dissertation. So I am... (laughs) I am ingloriously uh, known as a all but dissertation, but man, I learned a lot and really provided me a great grounding in terms of analytical skill set and toolkit and uh, ways to look at things. And uh, even I'm still technically in the program, and I was continuing to do part-time consulting for Price Waterhouse. I had begun consulting for Freddie Mac uh-huh. in the late '90s and spent a couple years here at Freddie Mac. And somewhere along the line, an executive at Freddie Mac approached me one day and said, David, people here seem to like you. You seem to be doing good work. You seem to have no shortage of people who uh, are looking to use your services. How about we just cut out the middleman? Mm -hmm. Why don't you just come to work here? I'll give you a desk and you'll go find some work to do. And I was one month from then. uh, I didn't know for certain at that point. One month from then, I was going to have my first daughter. We had just bought a new house. That might as well change everything in my life at that one point in time. Uh-huh. And so uh, same, I came over to Freddie Mac in 1999 uh-huh. and started in what was then the financial research department, which uh, we don't still have today, but was a great department. We still have a lot of, lot of people who were in that department at that time. Uh-huh. And when did you get into multifamily? About two months later. Realized, where can I add the most value? And realized it was multifamily. I felt kindred spirits with the people in multifamily. That was an asset class I understood well. I understood single family as well, but if you will, 
wasn't as unique in that regard. I, mm -hmm. I think, relatively speaking, greater depth in, in terms of multifamily understanding that market, as well as seeing there was greater opportunity there. Mm -hmm. To be blunt, what I saw in our multifamily business was this great credit culture, but with some opportunity to advance the broader financial understanding of where capital markets were, where sort of more modern risk management was beyond just the credit and underwriting piece of it that, again, was always very And simple. was it obvious to you from what you knew looking at the team or whatever, because I knew those folks, that it was a credit life company? Um, my voice is going to go down because I'm thinking of it was a little boring, a little slow. Did you have some understanding of the then developing capital markets to say, well, there's some, we can do some stuff. You know, been following, even before coming to Freddie Mac and both at Pricewaterhouse, I'm in the evolving CMBS market, uh -huh. hadn't participated directly in Pricewaterhouse. And so realized kind of where things were going, realized to be a little academic, the growing importance of creating liquidity right. in the market. I mean, ultimately, I ascribe a lot of the evolution in commercial real estate over, you know, the last 20, 30 years really as providing global liquidity to what was otherwise a highly localized, decentralized market, you know, people in New York investing in New York assets. Absolutely and, true. Uh, when you are investing in undivided buildings and with relatively simple structures, that's what you had. And what, I mean, being able to structure, syndicate, securitize. So talk about the evolution of your leadership, because I'm thinking of, here's this guy comes here as an economist understands these things really well, starts to build into securitization world and looks for increasing sophistication. So walk us through in a few minutes, this will be a, like a fast forward talk, about how you got there to running multifamily and then how you changed as a leader in terms of running from ideas to running to leading. Sure. So part of it, almost kind of laying the groundwork again, is so we could see that the business was generally in good shape. It had good bones, uh -huh. but there was a, a significant opportunity, even then starting in 99, let alone as I was kind of talking about earlier, the, the, the securitization transformation, right. to really sort of change how we did things. And that consisted of bringing in, again, kind of a, a more of a quantitative risk management focus and understanding of the underlying economics of the finance of the business, not simply this is a good loan and it'll pay off, this is a good borrower and we should do business with them, but understanding how we made money, how we could lose money, how to think about portfolio management, gave me the platform to begin doing that and got to piece hmm. by piece transform the business. You said very early on, sort of, uh, you were talking about talking to a lot of different CEOs, founder CEOs. I know this is going to sound presumptuous, but I, I sometimes feel a little like a founder CEO for multifamily in that I have had a hand in sort of every piece of how that business now works today mm -hmm. in terms of, so we redid the risk management process. We redid how we, I built the capital markets process, built securitization machine, redid how we did some of the asset management process. And so had this opportunity that I think is very unique and I feel very privileged to have had to really restructure lots of different pieces of it mm -hmm. um, and adapt it to where we thought the future might lie. And to come back to that transition from doing to leading, Right. if I had to kind of put my finger on it, I'd say sort of seeing where the opportunity is and sort of first getting people, earlier in my career it was more senior people, to kind of buy into the vision 
mm-hmm. buy into the opportunity and what the strategy is, advocate for change where I thought it was necessary. And and also just having the courage, maybe the chutzpah, to push for some of that change. Mm-hmm. And I think through that process, making that transition, I mean, you mentioned economists early on, from being an analyst, if you will, right. to a manager and a, and a leader. And it's interesting. Sometimes you think of ambition, pushing the world away so I can keep growing, because I'm going to pound on my chest, I can keep growing. And the other is, here's someone with vision and sees where this needs to go, and he's convincing me to let this keep going. So I have two hands here. The listeners can't watch my hands with, in different directions. And is it a little bit of both for you as, hey, I want to go grow, or is it, here's a need for this group? No, it's a, I think it's a great question. And, and as you're saying it, I think it's probably three quarters, four fifths, the vision piece of it. I don't, uh-huh. I don't, I've never really thought of myself as much as the pound the chest guy. Yeah. Um, I don't see other that, than, so that's other why than, I, I mean, there occasionally I've, I've had religion about some things. Uh-huh. Um, and again, I mean, the bigger transformations, you've got to do a little bit of that. I think it's you've got, you got to sell the vision. Right. You've also got to know at times in leading any organization where if we've made a decision, we've chosen a direction, it's time to get on board. And if you're not on board, then that's... Right. That's when you've got to to push a little harder. I I also think of it as skill set. Again, we haven't talked to people about this on the podcast, so it's interesting. But a skill set within to grow a career and grow a business within a big corporation is how to get permission to go grow in this way and that way and the other way. And so the skill set of identifying, having the vision, identifying, having the vision, and then the articulation to get someone to give you permission to go down that path, that's a really important thing to know how to do. Yes, and it's a shame I had no idea how to do it at the time. Uh, it still, <laughs> kept it doing it, though. It worked out. No, I mentioned before, I'm fortunate to have had good sponsors and, uh, and mentors right. along the way. You know, I, I might even say some of it, better to be lucky than good at times, in that multifamily at Freddie Mac is a huge business. But it is the smaller business. Right. And I think that might have afforded us greater latitude to change as we were always in the shadow of the single family business, mm-hmm. which at times we might have complained about, but in retrospect, I think really enabled us to drive change a little bit harder because we were a little bit off the radar. And so that made it a little bit more possible. I think it's also just a, going back to the comparisons of the size right. of Fannie versus Freddie. We're in a duopoly and we're second. And that, I don't want to say we had nothing to lose, but I think recognizing, well, that wasn't a very comfortable spot. And I don't want to criticize. I think we were running a good business at the time, but we were smaller. And there were generally, I mean, people might have asserted we were less efficient. And uh, back then, people would say we had the inferior business model. It seemed like there was a calling for change. There was a good rationale for it so that the case, the opportunity was there. And also the kernel, it's interesting when you describe the difference between the delegated business with DUS business at, at Fannie Mae and then your business, which was always prior approval, that you didn't change the DNA of that discipline and that actually moved into your strength of being more hands-on in customer service, I think. You've it's got really it exactly interesting. right. We leveraged that core strength, as I've said a few times, right? right. Credit, underwriting, that hands-on touching and loan manufacturing capability has always been uh, the one core strength we've had. The securitization change leveraged it as to become part of our brand. Right. 
and that now we get paid for that brand every day in the week in the capital markets because the Freddie Mac quality of multifamily means something. Uh-huh. So I think we have turned that into a, a uh-huh. significant strength and retained it as our, uh, as again, one of our core competitive advantages. So, so many things I want to drill into, and we're not going to have time to do it. But I want to talk about that transition then for you to become the CEO of the company. And the company is what percent multifamily and what percent single family? So it's about 15% by uh-huh. assets. Uh-huh. It's about a third by profit. And in terms of employees, it's about yeah, 20%. So uh-huh. call it 20%, if you will. If you hadn't already gotten this impression from my career trajectory earlier, being CEO was not something that I had kind of planned out on the whiteboard uh-huh. that was the natural next step. I became president in September and followed our seventh CEO, Don uh-huh. Layton, uh-huh. who had been here for a number of years and had a great relationship with Don. And he did a fabulous job in really you know, lifting Freddie Mac in general and had thought perhaps it was time to move on when just, you know, it was fortuitous, perhaps or not. At the very same time, then Don had informed me that he was starting to think about retiring himself. I mean, ultimately came back and said, yes, I think I would be interested. It would be a fantastic challenge in terms of leadership, in terms of where we are as a company, in terms of the ability to create value, go back to all of the things we talked about early on in terms of uh, our mission and leading the market and decided I'd go ahead and raise my hand and put my hat in the ring. And, you know, sort of as I say, the rest is history. Ultimately, the board did select me to be the next CEO and humbled by their decision and trying to live up to their expectations. Right, and you will. So a question I'm just thinking about this is, for you to be the logical choice for this job, I'm a headhunter, so I think about, okay, does he check all the, how's this work? But I'm also guessing that during the global financial crisis and conservatorship, there was a bit of A, batten down the hatches, and B, that the top leaders in each of the business had to together think through the company. And I'm guessing that you then were broadening your responsibility and understanding of the overall business through those turbulent times. But I have no idea. So is there some truth to that? or Yes, maybe. Okay. Um, I might describe it a little bit differently. And okay. It does go a little bit to the differing experiences of single-family, multifamily through the crisis. Right. So multifamily really did not experience much in the way of losses. Now, it was still a very painful process. And it was challenging for a company and to be put into conservatorship and have significant kind of leadership changes. I only kind of remind uh, you, your listeners, you know, we were put into conservatorship in September of 2008. But you were asking about kind of learning more about the different businesses, I think, at that time. To be ready to then become CEO of the whole thing from the 15% of the company. um, And there, I'd only disappoint and say not so much. I mean, I always had strong relationships, in part from the way I came in in the first place, coming into financial research, with different parts of the company. Uh And having actually been in uh, capital markets, capital markets was actually not part of multifamily for some period of my tenure and was actually moved out of multifamily into the corporate capital markets area. So I had strong relationships, but really was primarily focused on multifamily. So, you know, there was a significant pivot a year and some months ago when I was named president and took over the single family business. I've been spending a lot of time with 
our single family leaders and understanding the, and, and the capital markets right. uh, folks. I understand, again, given that background, I had been more in touch with the capital markets business, but understanding a little bit better the single family business, how that works, investing more time there. I think you're hinting at it. You know, I think that would just probably the question on some people's minds as to, uh-huh. well, he's a multifamily guy. Can he lead the single family business, right. the bigger business? Right. And uh, I guess time will tell. You'll do it. So how do you exit conservatorship and how do you get through the political morass that underlies that across the board? And are you confident that we'll get there? I'm going to use the we because it matters as a taxpayer in a person real estate business. So we can't control our ultimate fate. So anything I'm about to say is predicated on the FHFA and Treasury ultimately make the decisions. All we can do is position ourselves. Right. And we can contribute in terms of how we conduct our business and how we manage our capital and how we manage our risk and the manage our people. But we'd ultimately get to make the final decisions. I'm optimistic that we will exit. I start with the very simple observation that we are a profitable business. We're viable business. We've got a good story. We've got a good brand. People understand what we do. People like what we do, and the economics add up as the business is currently constructed. Mm-hmm. So strikes me that that all argues for a strong potential for reprivatization. I would say even more boldly, look, if you just said here, the business as you know it today, look at the financials, look at the risks it takes, mm-hmm. would you invest in it? I think you generally get people answering yes, which argues really the economic side of the equation. Right. There is then the policy and political side, and that's where I go back to my earlier statements. Is there ability to navigate the policy waters, whatever political challenges? In some ways, I'm thankful that's not primarily my job. It's mm-hmm. not my job. I just am optimistic that I think those waters will be navigated and that we'll exit in the near future. And we will do everything in our power to ensure we are ready to go, that we have our risks well controlled, that we are transparent, our economics are solid, we're serving our mission, and we're doing everything we're supposed to do. The last question I always ask, if you had five minutes or a few minutes with a young person getting into the real estate business and someone managing their career going forward, what would your advice be? Well, this isn't a theoretical question. I uh-huh. have a daughter at the University of Southern California who is a junior who is thinking about real estate as well as she has classmates, colleagues and try to offer similar suggestions, whether or not she listens or not is another story. But I think it's a great industry, is the first statement. is a wonderful place, and obviously more so for some, if that just happens to be uh, kind of what you're interested in, is to experiment, is to try to uh, see what you like in terms of different roles. Try to learn as much as you can in terms of finance, in terms of investment, in terms of the physical asset, in terms of the underlying economics, in terms of the law, and recognize that what makes it both a very interesting industry and a great opportunity for some who you know are good at thinking through interdisciplinary type activities, it's a little of all of these things kind of mixed together that it's not rocket science on the finance side, but you know, there's a little bit of it. 
it's not grand jurisprudence on the legal side, but understanding what legal structures are available and how to structure partnerships and things mm -hmm. of that nature. Understanding something about the physical property and how construction works and being able to put that all together and be able to be thoughtful about it. And so try to learn a little bit about all aspects of it, experience different avenues, and then also get out and meet people in the industry. Mm -hmm. Is what I've come to love about it is how small and intimate it is, how small a world it truly is in the industry. I won't say everyone knows each other, but it certainly feels like that much of the time. And so getting to know the people. I mean, a lot of industries will say they're a relationship business, and I, and I believe that's true. I just say that real estate, it's a relationship business with very close relationships. And long-term relationships. And long-term relationships. They last a long, long while. And repeated while. relationships. That's right. And I think that that really is one of the things that distinguishes it in terms of We'll be doing business, as you point out, for a long time and in a lot of different capacities, which just makes everybody on their best behavior and, and makes people look for the win-win a lot in what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Whereas I can think of other businesses where we may not really run across each other again or, or not for a long time and becomes a little more of a zero-sum game type mm -hmm. of environment. But So experience as much, learn as much, look at the multiple disciplines that are within it, and enjoy. Thank you for listening into Leading Voices, and I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. I have a request. If you enjoyed the episode and found it to be valuable, please share it with a friend or two. If they're podcast wary, take their smartphone in your hand and subscribe for them and teach them to listen. You'll change their life. Seriously, thanks for listening and keep in touch. You know you can reach me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. See you next time. <laughs>